At this time, the kids are dismissed to their program. Thanks, team, for for leading us into worship this morning. I was trying to discreetly come back up here, and meanwhile, I I like tossed the decorations off the wall. So hopefully, that didn't didn't throw anybody too much. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's seen this quirky little uh, film from 1989 starting, starring Weird Al Yankovic, uh, UHF. Has anybody seen that movie? Okay. Okay, two, two of us. So a few weeks ago, uh, Tom asked how many have read um, Thomas Akempis, uh, Imitation of Christ, and I wondered if it would be the same, you know, three people, but it's not quite, but there's a little overlap. Well, in this film that, uh, that nobody's seen... The lead character, George, says to Terry, he says, I-, I thought you never wanted to see me again. And Terry says, well, what gave you that idea? And Joyce, George says, uh, when you said, I never want to see you again. <laughs> so it's this interesting little exchange. Uh, and the movie's just plain, plain silly. But it's, it's not silly at all when we have those encounters where we, we say things, maybe rashly, we do things and, and drive somebody we love out of our lives and then then regret that but i think even more tragic is when we we push god out of our lives and and regret that we do things we say things and we we push him away and and maybe you've had a time in your life when you feel like your life's kind of unraveling (laughs) you don't sense god's presence you know where where's that joy from the lord where's that that comfort of his spirit i don't really feel his direction i don't i don't feel his courage his strength you know where god where are you and i think in some of those cases i could just picture god saying uh well i thought you wanted me to back off (laughs) we say what gave you that idea and he says well do you really need me to spell that out for you i think it's when you said to back off (laughs) by the way we we respond to god the posture we take so if you're following along in your Notice this morning, our big idea is that you can't actually push God away and, and regret it. You can have a posture toward God. You could say things. You can have certain attitudes and actions that communicate to God that I don't really want you around. And to our tragic loss, he tends to respect that. And we wonder, where is the presence of the Lord? <laughs> I, I don't feel it. I don't hear it. I don't, uh, I don't sense it. Well, Ezekiel um, e- explains this uh, very thing. What happens when we push God away? In these next few chapters that we'll look at, uh, Ezekiel 8 to 11, we'll, we'll see three different ways that um, things that we do, attitudes we have that push God away. But fortunately, we'll also see some ways that we welcome him back in. We welcome him near. Um, last week we looked at Ezekiel 4 to 7 as this crazy section where Ezekiel uh, acts out these parables to make some, some really um, intense points. And basically the summary of that, his parables, and then, then his actual words to the Lord is that the holy city of Jerusalem is going to fall and the temple is going to, to be in ruin. And and so Ezekiel is, uh, his messages are to those people who are living in exile. They've already been, you know, 
taken away from Jerusalem. They're living in Babylon. And they are continuing in this line of thinking, like, well, not the city of Jerusalem. Nothing's going to really happen to the city of Jerusalem. How could God let anything happen to Jerusalem in the temple when that's where God's glory resides? That's where the glory of God, the, the obvious uh, presence of God resides. And the simple uh, summary answer is that uh, not for long. <laughs> His glory is not going to reside there for very long. And so in our chapters today, uh, chapters 8 to 11, uh, we see that Ezekiel is actually transported by God in, in a vision from Babylon to Jerusalem. And he gets a tour of the temple in, in this vision from God that explains uh, why the glory of God is leaving the presence or the midst of God's people. Why, why did the, the presence of God just pack up and move out of the, the, the central place of, of worship? And uh, in this vision, he gets the answer to that. So we'll, be in, we'll start in Ezekiel 11, and it starts out like this. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. In verse 2, Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. And he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a lot of crazy things already uh, about this. Uh, Today I'll be displaying some of my kids' artwork. So when we read Ezekiel years ago when my kids were young, this is what one of them drew uh, uh, in response to reading this passage. The hand of God reaching out and, you know, inflamed in fire and grabbing Ezekiel by the hair and then lifting him up between heaven and earth, you know, up into the sky. Uh, remember, this is the time, you know, before, you know, airplanes and hot air balloons, so nobody had done that. Um, and he's lifted up and he's shown, you know, by holding by his hair, um, all in the vision, uh, as he's transported to, uh, to Jerusalem. So very, very crazy. So the image, there, the vision that he saw, it was just really tragic, the things that were going on in the temple. Uh, but it's also very instructive for us as we read it. And it basically answers the question of uh, how do God's people sometimes push God away? And one of those ways is we push God away when we worship other things rather than God alone. Verse 3 says, uh, God, he brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. So he's transported to Jerusalem, to the temple. He's right there in the temple at the, at the gate. And he sees this same uh, vision of the glory of the Lord that we saw uh, earlier in the book. Um, but right there in the temple, you have the glory of the Lord, this somehow obvious presence of the Lord, and you have this idol image statue, idol of jealousy, right there in the same place. Uh, it's very... Um, 
Well, just to say it's very bad. <laughs> the glory of the Lord right next to the image of jealousy. This was maybe an Asherah pole, which was this problem, recurring problem for, um, for the people of Judah, um, a, uh, a female goddess worship. Um, but it's interesting that it's called the image of jealousy, and it says the problem with it is it provokes to jealousy. This provokes God to jealousy. And uh, we read sometimes in the scripture that God is a jealous God. And I think for some of us, that conjures up this thought of, wait, I thought jealousy was supposed to be bad. It's on those, you know, in the New Testament, it's on the naughty list. You know, don't, you know, get rid of all the jealousy. Well, there's a, there's a kind of jealousy that is petty and selfish and wrong. So, for instance, if you have a neighbor, uh, your neighbor maybe has a, more money than you, um, he's better looking than you, uh, he gets invited to all the parties and you don't get invited to all the parties, uh, he's got this really cool car, he's really funny, whatever it might be, and you have this anger and you're like, oh, I can't stand that guy. Well, that is unholy jealousy. But if that guy moves into your house and tries to seduce your wife and you rise up in anger that is holy, righteous jealousy. You don't say, hey, no, good for him. That's no big deal. No, that's totally wrong. So when we talk about the jealousy of God, it's in the context of a covenant relationship. So say, uh, when God says, okay, that idol provokes me to jealousy, we don't think, well, how petty of God to be jealous of an idol. It's like, no, because his covenanted people that he had bound himself to are worshiping something other than God. So just a little side trail on jealousy. Uh, let's skip down to verse 6. It says, uh, He said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here. And here's what happens. To drive me far from my sanctuary. But you'll see still greater abominations. So the things that he saw in the temple, he's like, this is what's driving the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord out of the temple from among his people. And he says, well, you'll see even worse things. And, and in this vision, God continues to give him this tour of the, of the terrible things that are happening in the temple. And in verses 7 to 13, he, he finds this little hole in the wall, and God tells him to dig the hole open so he could see through, and he peeks into the inner part of the, of the temple, and he sees uh, 70 uh, different men in there, um, all in their own little cubicles, worshiping their own little idol right there in the temple. And there's all these images on the walls of, of all these foreign gods and different things, and, and each guy is just in his own little cubicle in the dark, worshiping his own idol. And then in verses uh, 14 to 15, uh, now he's by the north gate, and he sees that these women are here in the, in the court, and they're weeping for Tammuz, who's a pagan fertility goddess. All these crazy things happening. Uh, Warren Wearsby, he just comments and says, the rituals associated with the worship of Tammuz were unspeakably vile, as most fertility rituals were. So you just picture all these just really horrible, uh, ritualistic, um, you know, sexually tinged, disgusting things happening in, in God's house. And so Ezekiel's getting this, this tour of this. And then they go into the inner court, verses 16 to 18, and he sees uh, 
a bunch of men, 25 men, with their backs turned toward the temple, bowing and worshiping uh, the sun uh, toward the east. All these things happening in the temple. All these other kinds of worship going on. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what we, the same scenario that we see in Romans, uh, the first chapter of Romans. And it continues, verse 24 of Romans 1 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who blessed them forever. Amen. Sometimes the worst thing we could get is to get what we want. <laughs> and uh, these people were there just worshiping whatever they wanted, saying, God, we don't care. We don't want you around. And God moves out. <laughs> he, he backs away. It's as if he says, uh, I'm, I'm not going to stop you from doing what you want, but you will reap uh, what you sow. Uh, God gives us a space, so to speak, when we worship other things. You know, we say, oh, I love God, but we really love money. Or, I love God, but I really love this, uh, this inappropriate relationship. Or, I love God, but I really love this destructive habit. Or, I really love, you know, the sound of my own voice or my reputation. Or, I really love this hobby or whatever it might be. And we're divided. God says, no, I just... I've uh, betrothed myself to you, and uh, I just want you to love me. <laughs> but we worship other things, and we say to God, uh, why don't you give me some space? And then we wonder where God went. <laughs> why don't I sense him anymore? Here, here's the result of these things at the end of the chapter in verse 18. It says, and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. The Lord doesn't heed their cries anymore because they told him to go away. So a super just sad uh, vision that, uh, that Ezekiel gets from God. Well, maybe you uh, are pretty single-focused and you are really devoted uh, to God. And you're not, you know, worshiping these other things and that's, that's not really where you're at. But, but there's other ways that we can push God out. And here's the second one. We push God away when we are unmoved by wickedness rather than heartbroken by it. In chapter 9, and I'm going to do some real summarizing here, uh, in his vision he sees these four supernatural kind of human-like beings that, that come into the temple. And six of these, these guys, I'll say, they have these weapons of destruction and they are um, they're commissioned to, to, to execute you know, judgment. And the seventh one, he's in linen, and he has this uh, writing tablet, um, kind of like a scribal thing, and he's tasked with going and identifying the people who uh, will uh, escape judgment. And so it's kind of this, this interesting picture that's being presented to uh, Ezekiel. So the guy in linen, he goes through uh, the city, and he, he identifies those that, uh, that won't be judged. And you're like, okay, this one, and that one, that one. And, but how does he decide who's not going to be judged uh, in this vision? Well, verse 4 of chapter 9, 
It says, the Lord said to him, to the, the guy in linen, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the, man who, of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in this city. That was how they separated them out. Uh, put a protection over the ones who are heartbroken about all this wickedness that's happening. The ones who, who see evil among God's people and they don't just shrug it off or don't say, yeah, it's no big deal, but who, but who grieve, who sigh and groan over it. Now, the focus here is on what's happening among God's people. Because uh, you can look out in the world and there's just no shortage of evil. You could stream it 24-7 into your home. Just You could put a pipe of uh, the news in your house to see how much evil there is. And you can, you know, internet it, Google it, whatever. There's plenty of evil. But we're talking specifically here about being heartbroken over the people of God who turn their back on God and are doing just horrible things and are doing uh, cruel things and vile things. And it should break our hearts. I think, what is uh, your gut reaction when someone in the family of God is... Uh, trapped in addiction or abandoning their vows or devoted to anything and everything but God or if they've just plunged into greed and lust and rage or arrogance or slander or whatever it might be? Do you well up with pride? Like, hey, I'm glad I'm not that person. Are you indifferent? Like, hey, you know, to each his own, that's their problem. Or, or do you grieve in your heart? Say, this is... This is the people of God. We're, we're family. Do we sigh? <laughs> Do we groan? Because I think Ezekiel, uh, this chapter, points out that we push God away when we're unmoved by the wickedness around us rather than heartbroken. Well, as this vision keeps progressing and we continue this tour of the temple and what a disaster it is, um, the focus is increasingly on, on the leaders, those in power, um, Sometimes they're called, you know, princes or elders or priests, you know, basically the, the, the ones who the, the power players are. And the thing with power is that uh, it corrupts. <laughs> and we push God away when we use our influence, our power to exploit rather than to bless. And that's why the judgment starts with the elders. Verse 6 of chapter 9 says, uh, they began with the elders who were before the house. And what were they guilty of? Verse 9, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city is full of injustice. And so they are doing cruel things and they are doing unjust things. Well, then we move into chapter 10. And it, we, we see described the same glory of the Lord, wheeled throne uh, image that we saw in, uh, earlier in the book. Ezekiel saw it um, by the canal, and he saw it out in the plains or in the valley, and now he sees it again. And uh, here's some more my child's artwork. Uh, these beings that had eyes all over them, there was wheels with eyes and all that, if you remember that part. Um, you, you can read through this. It's, it's rather wild. And the glory of the Lord uh, keeps moving uh, around the temple. So it was hovering above the ark where it's supposed to be, and it moves to the threshold, and it moves to the gate, and it's like you could see the glory of the Lord just kind of packing up and shh, shh, moving further and further. 
out. Well, that's, that's what chapter 10 is about. And then, and then 11, we go back and we focus on, on the leaders. I know I hear the page flying. Shh, we're already in 11. Uh, verse, verse 2 of chapter 11 says, And he said to me, this is still a vision, he says, Son of man, these, these are like the princes, these rulers, these are the men who devise iniquity. You know, they, they think up evil plots. And who give wicked counsel to the city. In verse 6, you've multiplied your slain in the city and have filled its streets with the slain. So if I could just summarize all those accusations uh, against the leaders, it's that they exploited rather than blessed. They used their power in, in selfish ways. They used their power to, uh, to uh, oppress and uh, be heavy-handed and take advantage of, of those uh, without. They were in, there was injustice. They were unfair in favor of themselves. There was bloodshed, you know, where might makes right. They devised iniquity where they were conspiring these evil plans. And perhaps they were trying to uh, plan ways that they could leverage uh, this attack on the city for their own gain somehow. They were just, you know, they were plotting in the midst of this. And then they give wicked counsel. They say whatever to keep their position of control and power. So this is what uh, the leaders of the people were doing. And when we use our influence, we use our power to maintain an advantage at the cost of other people's disadvantage, uh, it's a rejection of God, the true king. It's uh, making us out to be king when we are not king. It's saying, I'm going to uh, use whatever power is at my disposal to my own benefit, and I don't care what God says is right or wrong. When we do that, we push God away. <laughs> when we pretend that we are the king. Uh, here's what's interesting, is that I think everybody has some kind of power and some kind of influence. Whether it's you're the biggest kid on the, uh, on the playground, or whether you're you know, a CEO, or whether you just are physically stronger, or you're more charming, or you're more connected, or whatever it might be, you all have some kind of influence or power over somebody. Maybe you're a parent or a grandparent, what are your role, etc. And you could use that to bless, or you could use that to exploit. So they're still clinging to their arrogant, self-seeking, and God shows them that judgment has begun. And so right in the middle of this vision, uh, God just strikes uh, one of the leaders dead. Uh, this is in verse 13 of chapter 11. It says, And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, uh, he died. He doesn't really say how, it just died. And Ezekiel's response is just fantastic. Um, he is the opposite response that these leaders are. Instead of saying, you know, well, good for you, whatever, things happen, uh, he was brokenhearted for uh, the people, for, for God's people. And he's overwhelmed with grief. And it says, uh, in the rest of that verse, it says, he fell down on his face, he cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? So 
God's given him this tour and showed him that, you know, the people of God are a complete mess. <laughs> they're worshiping all these other things. They're doing terrible things. They're using their power to exploit and not bless. It's just disgusting, all these things happening. And then he sees God just start to strike somebody dead. He's like, oh, my goodness, are, you're going to destroy us all. Uh, but no, the next section is just this beautiful response from God that says, no, I'm actually not going to destroy everyone, even though uh, that'd be totally okay for him to do that. But he's not going to because he's made promises and because of his character. And instead, he's going to bring restoration. Instead of total ruin, there's a message of restoration. The lost can be found. The prodigal can be restored. There's a promise of restoration for for Israel in this case, or Judah nationally, they actually partially already got the fulfillment when they came back into the land, um, but there's more to come, as we read, uh, that will be all sorted out in the millennium. There's a promise to the extended larger people of God uh, through Jesus that we get a hint of here. And it's also, I think, a pattern to anyone who desires to be restored to God. How, how do we welcome God back when we've pushed him out? And I think there's some hints here. First of all, we welcome God near when we acknowledge God's silent presence. So we've, we've pushed him away, and now we wonder where he is, and uh, it's this pivotal point when we realize, oh, he's not actually gone. <laughs> I, I'm the one who moved. Uh, it's not God who moved. So verse 16, it says, uh, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far off among the nations, this is taking his people and scattering them, like Babylon, for instance, Though I scatter them among the uh, countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. They're cast out to you know the far reaches of wherever, but God was with them even there. He was a sanctuary. He was a, a refuge, even in the middle of their mess that they got themselves into. In the middle of the messes that we get ourselves into, uh, God is still a refuge. He's still at hand. I do love Psalm 139. Uh, just a couple little pieces of it in the, in the middle, verse 7 and 8. Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. It's like, where, where can you really go where you don't have access to God? Well, nowhere. Even in your mess, when you've pushed God away so you don't sense his, his obvious presence, uh, still he's a, uh, a refuge. We need to acknowledge that even if my life's falling apart as a result of pushing God out, uh, even then he is at hand. Well, secondly, we welcome God near when we remove uh, the disgusting things, the detestable things. And verse 18 describes this. Is that when, you, when you come back, when, when they come back to uh, being with God in their midst, they will remove from it all the detestable things and its abominations. So if you really long for God's presence once again, um, I think this is a... Uh, 
encouragement that says, get rid of all those disgusting things in your life. Stop doing those, those things. Uh, how can you do those and say you want God to be, be near and present? Uh, but this is much more than a message of, well, clean your life up and then God can move back in. Because we, we need God's help to do that. We need God's spirit to do that. And that's what he gives us. The third, we welcome God near when we surrender to his spirit. Verse 19 says, And I will give them one heart. This is when he restores his people. Give them one heart and I'll give a new spirit. I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. Why? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And when God uh, puts his spirit in you and renews your spirit, then and only then can you really walk in his statutes. Uh, outside of that, it's just our you know, kind of futile attempts. But he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit in us. And he transforms our hearts. And what we need to do is just yield to that process and say, Lord, have, I, I surrender. <laughs> take, take charge. I've been trying to be king, and I pushed you off the throne, and, and it's a mess. <laughs> Come back in. Give me a new heart. Here is a, a young artist's rendition of getting a new heart machine. So I, I, I think that's what this is. I think the tall one's God, and he's got this soft heart, and it has this machine he puts it in that, that pumps a new heart. I don't think it works like exactly that way, but, um, but that, might be, that might be helpful for you to think that way. I think we need to pray something like this. You, God, I can't live a righteous life in my own power. I need you to transform me from the inside out. I need a new heart, and I surrender to your spirit in me. Well, then we have the glorious point of all this restoration in the last part of verse 20. It says, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is the whole point of all this, is that God wants a people that are his, where he's in, dwelling in the, the middle of them, and that everything is great, and we have this relationship where there's not any divide, and there's not uh, split uh, allegiance, and it's just a sweet Thing to be in the presence of the Lord. Like, that's the whole point of all of this. God and his people dwelling together. But before the vision completely ends, it snaps back just for, just for a moment to the urgency of the whole, uh, the whole deal. Verse 21, uh, just a reminder, restoration is coming, but as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things, they love all those disgusting things and their abominations, I'll bring the deeds on their heads, declares the Lord God. If after all the warnings, you still push away God to pursue the detestable things, uh, then, then we regret it. <laughs> there comes a day when we sure wish that we hadn't. Well, then verses 22 and 23, the glory of the Lord, the big, remember the throne chariot and all the, the splendor of it, it hovers up. It heads out the east gate, heads across the Kidron Valley. They see it over um, what's it called the Mount of Olives, and then they don't see it. It's like the presence of God 
took off. Well, you have to stay tuned to see where and how it shows up next. But for, for the sake of this vision, that, that's the last you see of, of the glory of the Lord. It's, so it's this, it's this urgent, uh, kind of devastating vision he sees. And then it concludes like this, verse 24 and 25. The Spirit lifted me up. So, you know, he'd lifted him into uh, Jerusalem. Then he lifts him back out. And he brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up for me. And when he comes to, verse 25, I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. And this is how... uh, this is how it concludes. This is, the, this is the vision he saw of, of God and of the temple and all that was going on there and, uh, and how we can actually, by the, by the demeanor we have toward God, we could push away the obviousness of his presence in, in our lives. Um, this week, as I was you know, thinking about these things, I ran across a, a blog by uh, a young woman. Her name is Jen. And uh, she has three young boys, and her husband had left her about a year prior to this, um, to this uh, journal entry. And it says this. I just want to read it for you. In recent weeks, I've been praying for clarity and direction in my life. And to no surprise, guess what? God answered. It was one of those moments where God clearly answered, and I could not ignore it. Later that week at church, the message was one of those messages that I felt the pastor was speaking right to me. And he said, you have as much of God in your life as you want. (laughs) This statement was a major wake-up call to me. It was as if a light bulb went off. I finally knew what God had called me to do this year. Well, better late than never, right? Because I'm foregoing all the sideshow distractions in my life and the fillers, and I'm dedicating the next year of my life to my relationship with my Lord God. I know many of you are thinking that I should have been doing that all along, that as a Christian, that's part of the deal. To you, I say, uh, yes, I should, and I have, but I haven't till now been all in with God. This sense of, well, I've kind of wanted a little bit of God. (laughs) I wanted his help, especially on the, the tough days, but I didn't want to be all in with God. And this statement is... Like this isn't a, a verse or something from the Bible, but I think I think it's true. Um, you have about as much of God in your life as you want. Well, I know there's exceptions because sometimes we're going our own way and we're we're just headed, you know, right down our own path of destruction, and God will just jump right in the path <laughs> and make Himself known in some ways that are that are um, hard to miss, you might say. But in general. We have about as much of him in our life as we want. And when we push him away, we regret it. And we welcome him in by being uh, in a state of just surrender to him, saying, I, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. And, and that's our, our challenge today is to invite God in by being, being all in. Don't just dabble in Christianity. <laughs> uh, make him your, your Lord, your your one true love, and pursue him with all your heart. I do just want to invite the team to come back up as we sing about how glorious God is. Um, but I do remind you, uh, right 
after we sing this final song that uh, there'll be some people down available to pray with you uh, if there's something you'd like prayer for. And uh, I also especially want to invite uh, Janine, if she would come down just after the song, and some of the, um, the deacons, if any deacons are available. We'd just love to pray for you before you, you head off uh, today up north. So really great to have you here today.